another great morning of worship. Pastor Ryan always does a phenomenal job leading us in worship, and we have some very talented musicians with Jacob and Bonnie and Allison and the likes, so we're more than blessed, and Mary Carlton, thank you so much for doing the welcome this morning. You did a phenomenal job. I was a little nervous when you were praying. I I was afraid you were going to pray that the sermon was short, (laughs) but thank you for not doing that, so... um, but you did a great job, thank you. It's, it's, most of y'all know that I was a youth pastor prior to starting Redemption Hill, and you know, my heart really bleeds for young families, children and youth, and so I love seeing children and youth, and I love seeing when our youth are involved, and so we had Mary Carlton this morning up here um, doing the welcome. Jacob, who was in the youth group when I was a youth pastor up here, helping with worship, and then we got Fuller and Zach over there playing video games, and <laughs> doing the PowerPoint. I'll, I'm just messing with that. I didn't catch it. But, um, but it's, it's exciting. That's, that's what I, I love this. You know, we often talk about a faith family, and um, I hope those that are here realize, and you see that um, I believe especially the youth are important to, to the church, and this is not, sometimes we, 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 we say that the youth are um, the generation of tomorrow, and I just don't believe that. I, I think that the youth that we have are the generation of today, and so um, I, I enjoy, I love the idea of them being involved, and, and them not just coming because mom and dad dragged them here, <coughs> although that might be the case on occasion, but, but coming because they like church, and they like being a part of it, and they don't just come and receive, but they come and they give, and so it's exciting to see them do that, and so youth, I'm, I know Pastor Ryan's proud of you guys, but I am as well, so thank you for, for all that. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 7. This morning, John chapter 7, and uh, last week we, we went through John chapter 6, and, and, and today we're going we're gonna to try and go through John chapter 7 as well. Those who grew up going to church probably remember as a child going through Sunday school and hearing the different Bible story lessons, and, and you probably have like a favorite lesson that you remember as a kid. Uh, one of my favorite, probably my favorite as a little kid was, was David and Goliath, like every little boy, right? But one of my other um, most favorite stories was Daniel in the lion's den. How many guys, Daniel in the lion's den, anybody's kind of like favorite or one of their top five? No, I'm just, uh, me and me and Miss Bonnie, we're, we're. so Daniel, I, I love Daniel in the lion's den, this story, and if you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you have this 90-year-old prophet, Daniel, who had, um, forged this uh, strong relationship with the king, and Daniel was a very just and righteous man. And, and Daniel just, just loved the Lord, and people knew it. And when you read the book of Daniel, you see how he was faithful. In the midst of this, Daniel, one of the things that he did, he faithfully sought the Lord through prayer. And, and because of Daniel's position with the king, relationship with the king, there were people that got jealous of Daniel. And so the result, they came up with this plan to try and capture and kill Daniel. And you guys remember the plan. They, they make this deal where you're only allowed to worship the king. And the king himself got caught up in pride and signs this decree. And Daniel is faithful to God. So he continues to pray. And the result of that is he gets caught and they throw him in the lion's den. And, and God had bigger plans. 
what looked like a, a time where he would be ripped up and destroyed by lions. God protected Daniel, and the next morning, after a night of pacing, the king comes down there, they roll the stone away, and there's Daniel, and then the lions are just, I guess, laying down next to him. Maybe they're playing fetch. I don't know what they're doing, but, but nonetheless, Daniel's not eaten, and the lions are really, really hungry, and they throw all the bad people in, and the lions get eaten, right? Well, so we have that story, Daniel and the lions then. And maybe it could probably be better described as the lions in Daniel's den. We fast forward into the New Testament. We fast forward into this journey of Jesus. And Jesus now is going to be thrown into a lion's den of sorts. Although this one doesn't involve large 800-pound killing cats. This lion's den are people. And a few weeks ago, we talked about when Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. An amazing event, a man who had spent 38 years as an invalid, and and Jesus heals him. And rather than celebrating the grace and the the mercy of Jesus, these leaders, they they are upset because it occurred on the Sabbath day. Jesus broke one of their man-made rules. And from that day forward, we begin to see this group of Jews, um, Jewish leaders, the Jewish authorities, the, the royal officials, or religious officials, they, they begin to get very upset and mad at Jesus. And, and, and this um, upset, mad, angry feelings intensified to the point where they began to plot ways to kill Jesus. And so here we have Jesus, and, and Jesus, as a result, and if you remember his time in Jerusalem, um, the first time we read about him going to Jerusalem in, in John, he goes to the temple and he flips the tables, right? Remember, he cleansed the, temp- the temple. Again, not one of the nicer moments in the eyes of the religious officials. The next time he comes back, he heals the man on the Sabbath. They're upset that he's breaking another rule. And so Jesus is not really well-received by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so he leaves Jerusalem, he comes in Galilee. And that's what the last few weeks we've been talking, John chapter 6. All those events take place in, in Galilee. A few months have, have passed, and, and John chapter 6 occurs prior to the Passover. And we get to John chapter 7, another feast is about to be celebrated, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Some of your Bibles may refer to it as the, the Feast of, of the Booths. But this is the Feast of the Tabernacles. And there are three main feasts where the the families would congregate back to Jerusalem, congregate back to the temple. And this is one of the three. And and, and really, the Feast of the Tabernacles um, was the most joyous of these feasts. This is a time where they would would look back and they would celebrate um, some of their heritage. They would celebrate the great provisions of God. And they would, they, would, they would set up all these tents around the temple, like, like little pop-up tents. And it was almost like family camp. And this feast would last for a week. And it would conclude on the eighth day with this giant feast. And during this week, the, the families would get together, and, and, and the, the, the moms and the dads would tell the children these stories of their ancestors and how they wandered through the desert and God provided for them, that, that God brought this pillar of fire at night, and a pillar of smoke during the day that would, would, would lead them in where, the direction they should go. And when they got hungry and, and there was a lack of food, God brought manna from heaven. 
And when they were thirsty, out of water, God miraculously provided water. So it was a time of celebration, and, and, and the children would, would, would hear the stories from mom and dad, and it was just a great family, joyous time. Jesus um, begins his track towards Jerusalem. And we look at the beginning part of, of John chapter 7. I'm going to encourage you this morning. We're not going to read all of it. I would, I would greatly encourage you to go home this evening or this week and spend some time reading the different events. It's so interesting because as Jesus um, begins, and we see in the first part of this chapter, there's great confusion amongst the people. We see it at the beginning of the chapter. We see it at the end. We see it today. That whenever Jesus is discussed, whenever he's brought up in conversation in a large group, there's division. There are those who accept, there are those who believe, and there are those who reject, and there are those who do not believe. And so we see this, and and what's interesting in the first part is the ones leading the charge of unbelief are his own brothers. Jesus' own brothers the guys he grew up with did not believe. They're taunting him. They're saying, Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem, do your magic tricks so everyone believes. Jesus kind of rebukes them. It's, it's amazing to me. Think about this. Jesus, like growing up, could you imagine growing up with Jesus? Could you imagine if your brother was Jesus? I mean, think about that. I mean, you would have, your own sibling never got in trouble. Like, never broke a rule. Always took the trash out on time. Always made his bed in the morning. Never lied to mom. Never cried when mom said it was time to go to bed. Right? He, he, he never did anything wrong. He was always good. He was always nice. Could you imagine growing up with that? Sometimes we think back, we're like, well, how in the world could they not believe they, they saw this. They, they saw the, the same miracles that the multitude saw. Most of this stuff is going on in Capernaum where, where his family or his brothers had moved to. They had probably witnessed all this stuff. But yet it didn't translate to them. They didn't believe. Before we get too deep into this, I, I would encourage us as believers, one of the things that, uh, that, that God has really impressed in my heart lately is this idea of sharing my faith, being bold enough to, to share, wit- and we use the word kind of witness, telling people about Jesus. Sometimes we can easily fall into the trap of, well, if we're just nice people, if we're just nice people, then people will see it. I mean, if I wave to my neighbor, maybe if I bring them cookies at Christmas time, if I'm just a nice person, then eventually they're going to understand, they're going to believe. I think we can learn an example in, in just Jesus' family here, that, that Jesus was a nice guy. He did everything right. His brothers grew up with that, and they did not believe. Now, we don't know the fate of all of his family. We do know of two of his brothers, half-brothers, Jude, who has a book named after him, eventually believes him. James, also author of a book, the one who would become the early great church leader, they eventually believe in Jesus and follow him. But we understand, too, that 
they don't come to a point of belief in Jesus until after Jesus died and came back to life. And so I would encourage us to take another step beyond just trying to be a nice person and use kind of that term lifestyle evangelism. That's an important thing. People need to see it. But I would encourage us to go beyond that and be more bold to say it, to express it. And so anyways, Jesus has this interaction with his brothers. They're all having to go to Jerusalem. They want Jesus to go out there, perform his magic tricks and all that kind of stuff. They're mocking him. Jesus tells them to go ahead. And he uses the term, my time or my hour has not yet come. It's a, a fairly popular term that Jesus will use early in his ministry. My hour, my time has not come. What he's referring to is, is that time when his glory would be shown. That glory ultimately would be him going to the cross and dying. He's telling his brothers, my time, my glory, me being the Messiah revealed, the glory of the cross, it's not here yet. You go, you do your thing. And Jesus ultimately does go to Jerusalem. He kind of blends in with the crowds. This whole time, in his, his, this time in Judea and Jerusalem, he's on constant watch because of this intense hatred by these religious figures, religious officers, who are plotting at this time already to kill him. Jesus goes to this just happy, joyous family celebration. And for us to put this in perspective, Jesus is about six months from being pinned to a cross. Jesus shows up. This tabernacle, or Feast of Tabernacles, is very interesting. One of the, the things that they would do each morning, the seven days, they would, there would be this great processional where, where the, the priests would go and they would take these vessels and they would fill them with water in the pool of Siloam. And they would take the water, they would come back to the temple courtyard, and they would pour this water out in the courtyard. And this was to represent to the people when Jesus, or when God gave them the water, the provisions, while they were wandering here in, in the wilderness. On the eighth day, though, something different would occur. They would go to the pool with their vessels, but they would not fill the vessels with water. And then they would come back to the temple courtyard. And then they would read Isaiah 44, verse 3, and it says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessings upon thine offspring. As they symbolically poured an empty vessel. And they were celebrating. This was the time when they had left, the, the, their ancestors had left the wandering and they had entered into the promised land. There was no more need for this rock that provided water because they were in the promised land. And this was the climax of this feast. This was the eighth day, the great feast that was occurring. And as, as the high priest pours this empty vessel, Jesus spoke the words that Mary Carlton read this morning verse 37 Jesus stood up and cried out if anyone thirsts 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In the midst of this crowd, in the midst of the thousands of people that had gathered there, that would continue to come, awaiting the Messiah, their Savior, Jesus, this itinerant preacher, this 33-year-old carpenter with no formal training stands up as the empty vessel is being poured and declares himself the living water. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine what's going on? The living water. John um, follows this up by carefully letting us know that um, in verse 39, now he said about the, now he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. This idea of water was a symbol of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's interesting because even in this symbolism that they had provided, this pool of Siloam. Siloam, the, that Greek term, means sent one. The pool of the sent one. And Jesus is identifying himself as, I am the sent one. I am the Messiah, the one sent from the Father. No longer have to search. It is me. I am here. Again, this sparks this great debate in verse 40 going on through the rest of this this chapter where there's this great division amongst the people to the point where the crowds are calling Jesus a demon. More like the idea that this is, he's a lunatic. Who does this guy think he is to make such declarations? I uh, have told you guys before that, that sometimes preaching and teaching and talking about the Holy Spirit is a little bit more difficult for a guy like me. I, I grew up in a very traditional Baptist background. I, I, I remember during Christmas time I told you there are two things that Baptists typically are afraid to talk about. The Holy Spirit and Mary. Okay, And so we've already talked about Mary. We've talked about the Holy Spirit a couple times before. But this morning I want us to dive into a little bit about this idea of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of living water that God promises us. In this idea where he talks about providing this, um, this living water, it wasn't just an idea of a little bit of water. It was an abundance. A, a great example, if you were to go to the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel has this vision of the millennial kingdom. In this vision, there's the temple, and the, the water begins to stream from the temple, and there's this stream, a river coming from the temple. And a man comes to Ezekiel and tells him to, to, to walk 1,500 feet and then enter the water. And so Ezekiel goes, and he, he enters, goes his 1,500 feet, and then he walks into the water. And at that point, the water is about ankle deep. Then he's instructed again to go another 1,500 feet and enter the water. And so he does. And at that point, he's about knee deep. A third time, go walk another 1,500 feet and enter the water. He's waist deep. 
And then finally, a fourth time, 1,500 feet and into the water, and the water is over his head. It's abundant. He can no longer walk. He has to swim. It's totally enveloped around him. And see, this is the same picture that Jesus wants to paint of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That when we as believers, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, that the Holy Spirit indwells us. He comes into us. I, I love in, in our Bibles, if you would like to quickly, John chapter 20, verse 22, towards the end of the chapter here. Sometimes I think we can get a little mistaken about when the Holy Spirit began to indwell the disciples. Sometimes we, we point to the day of Pentecost. That was the day when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples. That's not the case. We see this in John chapter 20, verse 22. And this, this happens just after the resurrection. Jesus already appeared, appeared to Mary Magdalene and the rest of the group. Verse 22, um, he meets up with the disciples and he says here, he goes, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. It's that, it's that, that time that, that the disciples received the Holy Spirit. However, like us in our walk, and our spiritual walks, the moment we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit is in us. We begin our journey, but when we begin that journey, we're only ankle deep. In Luke, the Bible tells us Jesus tells his disciples that, that they are to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, and they will receive power. That term power, that Greek word is dunamis, meaning what we get our word dynamite from. Power. An abundant power. Power to change. Power to do things, not just walk. The disciples here, when we see this, they're fearful. All this has occurred. And after they've already received the Spirit, the Spirit's already in them. Yet not long after that, John 20, verse 22, they're hiding in fear. The Holy Spirit's in them, but they lack the power. My question for us this morning is this. As believers, when we ask Christ into our heart, into our life, when He becomes our Lord and Savior, we get the Holy Spirit, yes, He's in us. But there's a question I think we need to ponder. Does the Holy Spirit have us? Are we accessing the power of the Holy Spirit? Jesus talks about an abundant power. Dunamis, dynamite. Here, when he talks to the people as that empty vessel is being poured out, he says that he is if anyone's thirsty to come to me and they'll be quenched, they'll not thirst again. That's an abundant thirst. But yet we often, in our own lives, just try and get through it. We lack the power. And just like Ezekiel, as we go through our journey, we start off just, just kind of standing on the promises. 
And as we go a little bit further in our journey, hopefully, and we get back in the river, we're, we're hopefully knee-deep because we understand our, 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 our impetus. We, we understand that we lack the strength, and so we go to God in, in prayer asking Him for the strength, the wisdom, the discernment, the distraction, or the, the, the dis- discernment to get through it. And we go a little bit further in our walk. We grow more. We, we seek Him in, in, in a, His Bible in our Bible studies and in our lives, and we get waist deep. And then one day, hopefully, we reach that point of maturity in our faith. We desire this idea that, that we're in the stream. And we can no longer touch the ground. That we're swimming because we're, we're completely engulfed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure about you. I don't want to just be ankle deep with the Holy Spirit. I want to be in a river that I can't touch the bottom. I want a Holy Spirit that is so full. So full that providing so much power and strength. Because that's a God that we serve. That's a God who left heaven to die on a cross for us. So practically speaking, this morning, how do we reach that point? to where we're not just having the Holy Spirit in us, but we're living a life filled with the Holy Spirit. We're living a life where the Holy Spirit has come upon us. We're living a life where the Holy Spirit bursts through us and doesn't only refresh us, but refreshes those around us. How does that happen? I think there's three things we should consider. In uh, Numbers chapter 21, oh, I'm sorry. Lost my spot here. Numbers 17. The children of Israel are wandering around in the wilderness and they're lacking water. And so Moses goes to God asking for a discernment for direction and what to do and God simply tells him to strike a rock and water will come from the water or water will come from the rock. I think for us first and foremost to live a life of abundance in the Holy Spirit. A life where the Holy Spirit is flowing through us. The first thing we need to do is go to the rock. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 tells us that that rock was Jesus Christ. I find it amazing that six months after this, when Jesus is pinned to a cross, Bentley eventually dies on that cross. And then I guess three weeks or so, we'll be celebrating Easter. We know that as he hung from that cross, eventually the soldier takes and pierces his side. John uh, 19, verse 34, tells us that as he was pierced, blood and water came from Christ. That's significant. That blood is symbolic of the cleansing of our sin. But that water, again, is symbolic of the Spirit. 
See, before the Holy Spirit can dwell in us, before the Holy Spirit can come in our lives, we need to be cleansed. We need to go to the rock. We need to go to Jesus. So first, we need to go to the rock. Second, later on in Numbers chapter 20, the people once again are thirsty. They're once again, they're thirsty, and, and they go back to Moses. And, G, and Moses goes to, to God asking again for strength, for understanding. And, and Moses, or God tells Moses to go um, speak to the rocks. So first, go to the rock. The next, he said, go speak to the rock. Now, Moses is upset with the people. God had already provided for them, but they keep whining and sniveling and complaining. And so Moses doesn't listen to God. Instead, he goes back to the people, calls them rebels, and in anger strikes the rock. Twice, and then water comes. God is upset with Moses now. We all remember the story. Moses is punished. God tells Moses, listen, he wasn't mad about him striking the rock. The problem was Moses was a figure that the people would identify. Moses was the earthly figure of Jesus. He was their quote-unquote pastor, if you will. And, and, and what God tells Moses is, listen, I'm not mad at my people. I'm not disappointed at my people. But you just painted a picture that I was. So because of your actions, you will not be allowed allowed into the promised land. He, he simply said to him initially, come speak to the rocks. Go speak to the rocks. Luke eleven thirteen says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Let me read that again. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? That gift is the Holy Spirit. And He's telling people, you guys, you guys are bad, evil people, and you know how to give good gifts to your kids. If you can do it, think of what I can do for you. And that gift was the Holy Spirit. And the third thing is this. Again, the third time the Israelites are thirsty. We see it in Numbers chapter 21. This time, if you read uh, Numbers 21, 17, and 18, we realize that they simply sang a song to the rocks. They sang a song to the rocks. First, first, they're told to go to the rock. Second, they're told to speak to the rock. And then third, they're told to sing to the rock. See, in our minds, sometimes we think, well, did they literally carry this rock, this single rock with them the whole journey around the, as they're wandering? No, they didn't. Most commentaries will tell you that, that they believe that there was this subterranean um, current that was going underneath them. The whole time they're wandering, the water is below them. And they begin to sing this song. 
in Numbers 21, verse 17 and 18. And the water begins to bubble up from this well that they dug. A verse that's pretty familiar to most of us. is Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Why do we gather together on a Sunday morning? What's the whole purpose of of this whole shindig that we do? Because something happens when people get together and sing praises and speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Something happens when we come to the Lord's table or communion and we think about that rock that was smitten, that rock that was killed, that rock that hung on a cross for us. Something happens when we begin to sing, when we corporately begin to sing. Something begins to bubble up and overflow. How do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? How do you experience the coming upon this abundance of the Holy Spirit? It's not by doing goofy things. It's not by coming and and trying to do this woe is me. It's not by trying to earn anything with God. It's not by by anything fancy up here. It's not by by a little chant that you might do. It's not by some funny dance that you may, may try. It's simple. First, we have to come to the rock. We have to come to Jesus. We have to realize that we are all sinners. and He's not. We're trapped in our sins. He left heaven to come to earth to rescue us from our sins. We have to come to the rock. After we come to the rock, we need to talk to the rock, speak to the rock, spend time with the rock. Some of us lack power because we're spiritually starving. We're not in our, we're not in our Bible. We're not reading his word. We're not spending time praying with him and talking to him. It's like any other relationship that we have. I've said this before. If I don't spend time with Courtney, my wife, things begin to crumble, don't they? All of us who have been married for more than a day realize that, right? There are all, we can look back on our marriages. We can look back and see those, those times, those, those dry times, those difficult times. Whenever you create those times of separation, it gets that much more difficult, doesn't it? You begin to feel like strangers, it's the same way with God. Right? When, when we're not putting any, anything into that relationship, when we're not trying to grow closer to Him, we're the ones missing out, not Him. And so we've got to go to the rock first. We've got to speak to the rock first. We've got to spend time with the rock. And then we sing to that rock. We sing those praises. We sing our faith out loud. 
I love to be in the service. I told you, I love our worship team. They do a tremendous job week after week leading us. Pastor Ron is so gifted in music. But the Bible doesn't say only if I've given you the talent to sing, sing, does it? Bible doesn't say, listen, only if you're worthy of being on a CD or on iTunes, you should sing. The rest of you be quiet. It doesn't say that. We all should sing the praises of God. I, I love standing in the back and listening to not just our worship team sing, but our faith family sing. We don't just, Pastor Ryan doesn't just pick catchy tunes every Sunday morning. The songs that we sing, we sing to worship Jesus. That's our offering to Him. Unfortunately, what ends up happening in our lives, I believe, is that we try to manage God like we manage every other relationship. We have to manage things at work so we construct things around our schedule and our demands there we have to manage things at home kickball or soccer practice or baseball practice or dance class or gymnastics or cheerleading or whatever it is we manage all that we have to manage on time with our spouse our children we manage all these things and we do this and then we try and do the same thing with jesus rather than letting Him fill us, rather than Him being our all, rather than us worshiping and adoring Him and allowing Him be God, we in turn try and manage the one who created this universe. I hope my prayer is this, that we look at this and quit trying to manage Him like we manage everything else. We draw upon Him. That we live lives knowing that the Holy Spirit is in us. We know that. But we live lives where the Holy Spirit has us. That we step out in faith. That we do things that God calls us to do. We do it with great joy. We do it with great passion. We do it with great strength because God has given us the strength the power to do it. We quit limiting Him. And the only way we can do that is to first go to the rock, spend time with the rock, and then sing praises to the rock. Let's pray.